Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter. And we are coming close to the very end of our series in 1 Peter. I don't remember how many months we've been in this book. Um, lost count. It's been a while, and it's been a, it's been a wonderful journey together. Look with me in chapter 5. As we continue, and we will be reading in verse 10 of chapter 5 and verse 11. Well, actually, let's, go to, let's begin in verse 6. Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And... After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. In 5.10, in this verse 10, Peter continues this theme about God's people suffering for following Christ. The adversary who we just read about has prowled and is prowling around like a roaring lion and seeking someone to devour is the one behind their suffering, is the one that, that God is an instrument in God's hands for suffering. But suffering is not the only theme woven in Peter's letter. There's another theme that stands out, one that stands out far above suffering, and that is the theme we have seen throughout Peter, and that is the theme of God's grace. His letter reminds these Christians that their suffering is not all they experience as exiles in this world being followers of Christ, even as they live under the shadow of the cross, of sharing Christ's suffering, that they may one day share in his glory. The greater theme in Peter's letter is the continuing story of God's grace revealed in the gospel, even as they live under the shadow of the cross, a cross that, that brought suffering to Christ, but also brought glory to Christ. It's the same cross that we live under, the same shadow we live under. And Peter has repeatedly in his letter recalled the grace of the gospel that has saved them, recalled the grace of the gospel that has sustained them and will one day glorify them. In verse 2, Peter 
talks about may grace and peace be multiplied to you. In 1.10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. In 1.13, therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. In 3.7, again, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to them as weaker vessels, since they're heirs with you of the grace of life. In 4.10, Peter goes on. He doesn't stop about grace. As each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And then in 5, 5, Peter continues, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In 5, 10, he keeps on going. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace. And in 5, 12, he concludes his letter as he gives us the reason for his letter. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And so we see as much as there is this theme of suffering, and, and that's why Peter does write. He writes to, to encourage the suffering, but how does he encourage the suffering? He does it by standing on the grace of God and to remind them of what the grace of God is. Suffering, suffering is painful. Suffering is distracting, and it can at times feel overwhelming. And so here in 5, 10, and 11, Peter, Peter wisely, as a pastor, as a friend, as a fellow sufferer, as a fellow exile, Peter, Peter turns their eyes. He turns their gaze, not, not to what they are going through, but he turns their gaze away from the enemy and away from the circumstances that they are, are suffering, and, and he turns their gaze to the, the goodness of God, the encompassing, all-encompassing grace of God in their lives. Fix your eyes, he says, to the, to the future where grace will bring you in the midst of your suffering. Don't, don't be looking and just concerned about what's going on with you in your suffering, but look to what God says here. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen it, and establish you. He says, look, keep your eyes fixed there. A number of years ago, Marilyn and I uh, cashed in many of the frequent fire miles I had, had been saving um, over the years as I was traveling to Asia for Sovereign Grace. And, they did, and Marilyn and the girls decided they all wanted to go to Italy and cash in my miles and that I could come along with them as well. And so, and so we did. We, we went to Italy and we, we were in Florence. And, and one day Marilyn had made plans for us to take the bus trip from Florence to Siena, which is about an hour and a half. And, and I'm giving no thought to it, a bus trip. I can get car sick, air sick, boat sick, sick sick, just standing on a dock. And, um, and so I never gave thought to it. And then my youngest, Carrie, my daughter, she, um, she's like her dad um, in many good ways. Um, but... but <laughs> But she, she gets it. So we get on the bus. We got on this hour and a half trip on the bus. And I'm thinking, straight line, well, it's through mountainous roads. And we're going this and this and up and down. And literally by the time we got to Siena, um, 
we were both green and it did not look good for us. And, and, and I, I remember finding a pharmacy and trying to find a, an English way to speak Italian and get some Dramamine. Um, and so I did, I got some Dramamine and it, it began to help. Carrie slept on the bench. I drugged her to the fullest. Um, and, and, then, and here's the thing, we had to get back on the bus. We had to get back on the bus. And so the only thing that kept me going, Carrie was drugged to the hill. I just dragged her on the bus. Um, so she slept the whole way. She was fine. But I had to stay awake. All I could do was think of Florence. The next hour and a half going back and, and taking as many pills legally that I was allowed to take, um, I, I, I kept my eyes on the prize. I kept my eyes on the end of the trip, not the trip itself. And that is what Peter is saying here. Keep your eyes on the end. This is what he is writing to these exiles, these sojourners in a hostile world, hostile to their faith. Now, I have said this, Devin has said this throughout this series, that what these believers are experiencing in many ways parallel what you experience. They're not experiencing at this point physical persecution. It's, it's social and cultural rejection. It's hostilities in the way people speak to them. It's hostilities in the way people view them. It's, it's the kind of life where people look down on you. They think, they, and they come up with, with new labels for you because you're a follower of Christ. That's what these people are experiencing. And, and you experience it in different places, in the workplace, or maybe in the neighborhood, or among family members. But it's, it's not a it may not be as constant, but here's the thing. Peter, Peter's preparing them. Peter is writing, as we will learn next week as we close out this series, Peter is writing from Rome. Peter is writing, and he knows, he knows suffering is coming even more intense than what they're experiencing now, and he is, he's preparing them, and he's saying, look, understand, understand where you are now, understand what God has done in you and is doing for you, and be ready for what's about to come. And brothers and sisters, the same applies to you this morning. Be ready for what is about to come. You live in the United States of America. You live in one of the, the, the best countries in all the world in many ways. Yeah, our, our country has been taking a hit these past years with, with many perspectives, but the, the freedoms that you have, the freedom to gather here this morning the freedom for us to gather tonight again as God's family. Uh, one, of my, one of my trips to Burma, which is a closed country, was under a military dictatorship when I first started going, and we had to meet in secret places when I first started going. Things have loosened up there, but when I first started going, there were men who traveled days by bus and bike and train to get to the meetings that we were having. And then they had to sleep around the area, hidden from secret police, just to gather together. You don't have to do that. But Peter is preparing. And so he writes and, and he, and he's saying this, and this is how he encourages them. Look at verse 10. 
and after you have suffered a little while. The promise is that suffering is only for a little while. This is an echo from from chapter 1 and verses 6 and 7 where Peter writes them, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. For a little while. Now, a little while in, in Peter's mind, a little while in, in the mind of God, we're not talking about an hour and a half bus ride from Siena back to Florence. He's talking about the rest of their lives. That's the little while that he's referring to. And every, every believer, every, every person who follows after Christ does live under the shadow of the cross, a cross that means suffering for being a follower of Christ, but also a cross that's full of the demonstration of God's love and grace towards his creation. Even in their suffering, Peter assures them God's grace is present and abundant. They can trust the character of God. You can trust the character of God. They can trust that God's love endures. His grace is sufficient, and he has not abandoned them. And when you and I suffer, that is the same that is true for us. What we must not do is have a a false hope in thinking that this suffering, this lifetime that we're experiencing, being a follower of Christ, is going to somehow just be blissful to the very end. It will not. It will not. And that's not doomsday preaching. Yeah, I know the clock is ticking. I get it. But it's the reality because at the very beginning, one of the first words Peter writes is, to exiles. That means you. You live as an exile in this world because you do not belong to this world. You're a citizen of heaven if you've come to faith in Christ. You're not a citizen of this world. And so Peter Peter is preparing them. And so don't have false hope because according, according to God's will in 419, 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. God is using their suffering to refine them as we learn in, in 1, 6, and 7 that it, his, his refining in this you suffered for a little while if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold. God sees your faith as more precious than gold. And so what does he do to that faith that is more precious than gold? Well, he says right here, Peter says right here, that your faith more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire, God tests it by fire to prove that it may be resulting in praise and honor and glory. And that's not praise and honor and glory to God. That's praise and honor and glory to those who've been tested by fire, whose faith is genuine. Now, as difficult as this might seem, suffering isn't something bad that's happening to you. It is not something bad that it's happening to you, but something in the mysterious providence of God, it's something good that is happening to you because God's grace has a purpose and a goal. I, I, I realize we don't look at suffering as a means of God's grace but it is. 
It is the testing of your faith that is more precious than gold. So that when, when God, God returns, you are a well done, good and faithful servant. God's grace has a purpose and goal. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and through 18 says this, in the midst of your suffering, so do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. That is what God is doing in you. He's working eternity in you, so to speak. He is, he is working in you by His grace through suffering to prepare you for eternity. And that is, that's the reign of God's grace in Christ in your life. And so three points this morning to describe what Peter is saying here. The first is that we would understand God's grace is the source of God's grace. Peter reminds his readers that this profound truth, the source of grace, is God. They're, they're not suffering without a purpose because he is the God of all grace who has called them, is working with them, is working in them. Peter has stated in 5.12 that all he has written is about the true grace of God. That, that's his purpose in his letter, to expound upon the grace of God in suffering. Now, you can, you can tease this out further. He is particularly, specifically writing to a suffering church, suffering for being a follower of Christ. But there is grace in the kind of suffering that we face in our daily lives because we live in a world that is broken. We live in a world that is decaying. We live in a world, as Paul writes in Romans 8, that is groaning under the weight of sin. And we feel the effects of that sin, whether it's in sickness or in, in broken down relationships or whatever. We, we experience the groaning and suffering from sin. And, and here you can know that God's grace is evident and available there as well. But in particular, Peter's talking about for suffering. Listen, when Peter writes, he's aware of the words in John 21. He's aware of his conversation with Jesus in John 21 as they're walking along the shore and, and he has to face his own death. God, the Lord is speaking to Peter and he communicates to him at the very end of his life after, hey, feed my sheep. Um, you know, he goes, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk around where, wherever you wanted. But when you are old, Peter, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said, Jesus said to Peter to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. Peter was crucified. Jesus was prophesying to Peter that he would be crucified. He would stretch out his hands. He would be carried to where he did not want to go. And so Peter, look, Peter is writing a book to encourage people about suffering, aware of what his final destiny is. And he writes about the grace of God. He writes about the goodness of God. 
He writes knowing he is going to be crucified. And yet, you don't see anything in here of self-pity or, or complaining. Peter sees the grace of God. And, and after Jesus gave him that prophetic utterance that, that this is where you're going, Jesus' next words to Peter in John 21 are this. Follow me. Follow me. And so th- this, is what, this is what grace is, to follow Christ knowing what stands before you knowing what stood before Peter. This is what makes that letter, this letter, so impressive. He's aware of his destiny. And the God of all grace, the God of all grace. And after you suffered a little while, Peter's knowing, I'm going to suffer. It's only going to be a while. And I'm looking to the end. I'm looking back to Florence. I'm going to suffer for a little while. And after you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace will be with me. God of all grace will care for me. This is what makes the gospel such an amazing mystery. What exactly is grace? I bet if I asked you, I would probably get a very common answer. The most common definition, God's unmerited favor. How many of you thought that, right? Yeah, many of you thought that, but I think we can can and should go deeper in describing God's grace. Not only have we not done anything to earn God's grace, unmerited favor. Listen, we've done everything we could to disqualify ourselves from God's grace. Dismerited favor. We, we haven't done anything to earn God's grace. This is what makes the gospel so amazing. This is what makes it such a mystery to each of us. God loved us and saved us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and, and he became flesh. He wore our flesh to live our life, to experience our temptations, to experience our suffering, to experience all that we experience as frail human beings. He was a frail human being in that respect, and he suffered. He suffered for our sins. He died for our sins that we might live that we might, we might live and we might have life because of the resurrection, that, brothers and sisters, is grace. Amen. That is grace. The gra- grace is the gospel, not a commodity. Here, 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 here's some grace, not, not a substance. That's not what, what grace is that can be given to us. Grace, grace is a person. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. It's God himself revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. Grace is the disposition of God's heart towards needy creation. Needy creation. There's nothing we can do ever to receive from God because we've earned it. All we ever receive from God is everything we haven't deserved, which is his grace. And he lavishes it upon us. I mean, that's what's even more amazing. He lavishes grace upon you and me. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. The source of grace is God himself. 
What do we need in our suffering? We need the God of all grace. We need, we need the God of all grace in every moment of our lives. We need the source and giver of grace who willingly and lovingly lavishes his, his grace and mercy upon us for help in time of need, Hebrews 4. That's what we need, and that's who God is. God is the source of all grace. And so here Peter writes, you know, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, the source of all grace, God, God. God is going to care for you. And, and, and then he goes on, Peter goes on, and, and the second point is he describes the effects of grace. He doesn't stop here just talking about the God of all grace who has loved us and saved us. No, he goes on to describe God's grace in action, finding its fulfillment in the gospel. The God of all grace, look at this, the God of all grace who has called you. He called you. He reached out to you. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, when you were not alive, when you were an enemy of God, when you were rejecting God, when you rebelled against God, when you had no interest in God, he called you. He spoke to you. You heard him because he let you, made you, regenerated you, that your, your heart would now be soft towards him. He called you that you could hear him. Why would, be God, why would God be so gracious to call to himself those who have been so sinful? Why would he do that? Because grace is who he is. That's, that's why he did it. It's who he is. God, God cannot be anything but grace. Grace comes from no other place but God. He's the source of grace, and the effects of his grace is he, he calls us. God's gracious character is evident from, from all that he does. He, he effectively called these people to his kingdom. They are followers of Christ. He effectively called us to his kingdom. We are followers of Christ. And Peter, Peter wants to make sure that the readers of his letter are reminded of this truth. Now, imagine, I mean, they are the, the, the I say readers, but, but you got to understand the, when this letter was read, they were sitting around like you, in, in a, gathered together in a home, maybe, in a temple, someplace. They were gathered together, and they were listening to these words read to them. And it wasn't, it wasn't there were no chapter headings. <laughs> there were no verse, verses, no numbers. It was just a letter. And, and Peter just, as he wrote it, Whoever read it, read it straight through. And he gets to this point after all this talk about suffering. The God of all grace who has called you. And what, is he, what has he called you to? He's called you to his eternal glory in Christ. It's a lot different than hearing my mom call me, Larry! Come in the house for dinner. Larry, come in the house for dinner. Lawrence, Jane Malament, come in the house for dinner. 
you needed the full name to realize they were serious. You hear that call, and that's just normal part of life. This calling, this calling, this calling's to eternal glory. Eternal glory. L- listen, look at the comparison here. Look at the contrast here. After you have suffered a little while, God has called you to eternal glory. What a contrast. Well, how, how does that put suffering in perspective? A little while, eternal glory. So the ultimate purpose of their call is they my share in Christ's eternal glory. The assurance of their eternal destiny is because they are in Christ. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. They are in Christ. And heaven awaits. Their, their eternal destiny, their future is secure in Christ. It was what we've read again and again in chapter 1. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope because we were called through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. That is what Peter says he has called you to. That is eternal glory. Kept in heaven for you. Heaven awaits. Suffering is only for a little while, but eternity has no end. No end. Wayne Grudem says, this this comforting thought is strengthened by the reminder that God is the God who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That is the realm that really counts for it lasts forever. In that realm, the manifold excellence of God's character is given spectacular expression in his eternal glory. Something that ordinarily would to us remain distant in fearful awe. Yet God has decided we should not remain distant but that we should be summoned into the midst of his own glory. Yes, even that we should come in Christ to share in it, partially now and more fully in the life to come. Here is the promise of abundant grace sufficient to overcome any suffering in this life. And so now, in view of, 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 of his grace, this is, this is what Peter, look what he says, and the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in, in Christ. And, and to me, this, he, here, here's, where, here's where I just marveled at this passage. Peter writes that God will himself. Now you get that? God will himself. Not an angel. The first person of the Trinity God the Father will himself affect grace in you by he'll restore you, 
He'll confirm you. He'll strengthen you. He will establish you. Peter goes on to describe the work of God's grace in their lives. Four different verbs are used here to describe what God will do for believers, for these believers. Four words that define true grace. Four words, four verbs that are forward-looking. He's he's looking about what heaven is going to be in. You are going to be restored. You are going to be confirmed. You're going to be strengthened. You'll be established and and. They're, they're all emphatically making the same point. The God who has called believers to eternal glory will strengthen and fortify them so they endure to the end. And when they get to the end, these verbs are here. There's the future promise of what life will be like. They express a promise, not a wish. Peter is not praying that God may, but believing and affirming that God will give his readers. This is assurance, brothers and sisters. This is God's assurance to you this morning. He will. God himself will do this for you. God can be counted on to complete the salvation he began in you. This is what God is saying. D. Edmund Hebert in his commentary says this, the use of these four verbs is not redundant rhetoric. There's an orderly thought developed here. The first assured the readers that God would keep on perfecting his suffering children so that no defect would remain in them. The remaining three verbs are different aspects of his work. God will provide believers with the needed support so they will not topple and fall, impart the needed strength so they will not collapse, and set them upon an immovable foundation so they will not be swept away. Oh my, do you you see what God himself will do for you? restore, to, to restore to your former condition. The, the Greek behind this is to mend the net or to, to, to set the broken bone. In other words, what, what the world does to us and the, and the, and the brokenness and the, and the suffering that we experience and, and all that, when we get to heaven, it, uh, it's over. We are restored. And, and to be confirmed means to make strong, to, to, to make you, to put you on a solid foundation. You'll be on the whole, the, you want a solid foundation? It'll be the streets of gold walking in, in, in the kingdom of God. And strengthen to, to firmly resist what you... You'll be strong in Christ and, and established, steadfast. Colossians 1.23, we read it last week. Continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard. And Robert Mounts says this in his commentary. He says, listen, suffering may take its toll, and it will. But God himself intends to restore and establish securely those who are now suffering on his behalf. It is God himself who will do this. He is personally involved in the reestablishment of those who have suffered on his behalf. The reward is eternal, but it is after you have suffered a little while. It is received after you have suffered a little while. That's the effect of grace, that God himself, God himself is, is working in you, for you, on behalf of you of you because he loves you 
He cares for you. And then third, the response to God's grace. Verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Overwhelmed by the, the promise of God's triumphant grace, Peter can only worship. Peter can only extol God. This is his second doxology, one he repeated earlier in 411. And interestingly, I, when I read this, I found it interesting. Peter does not say, to him be the glory. He says, to him be the dominion. To him be the power. To him be the sovereign power, the sovereign rule. He's making a point here. There is no adversary, brothers and sisters. There is no sin. There is no suffering. There is no circumstance that does not come under God's sovereign rule or his sovereign grace. All of creation is subject to God's power, the power that raised Christ from the dead is the power of our hope and assurance to be raised from the dead. Peter is not wishing, he is not even praying that God's power may endure. He's rejoicing in it. It's not surprising he concludes with the doxology because in view of God's mighty hand that we earlier read about under the mighty hand of God, in view of God's mighty hand and his saving grace, it's exactly what he wants and needs these believers to do. To worship God. To praise God. Every Christian can take great assurance and deep comfort in knowing dominion belongs to God. There is, there is no event, there is no experience, there is no pain that you suffer, there is no situation, circumstance you are in that God's dominion is not ruling. Amen. You can take great comfort in that. Peter's, Peter's amen at the end signifies, because amen is so be it, it signifies that this is what... D- Peter is longing to happen. Peter is longing for the God of all grace who has called him and called us to his eternal glory in Christ. God, he, is, he is amening that God will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish each and every one of us at the day that we stand before the throne of God. Restored wholly in Christ because of his willing sacrifice Death on the cross for you and for me. And then we will, suffering will be passed. Sin will be eradicated. And glory and peace and joy in eternity will be ours in Christ forever. Now last week, I read from Pilgrim's Progress where Christian on his way to the celestial city was having this massive battle with Apollyon, the representative of of the devil. Well, let's close with Pilgrim's Progress. A bit of a paraphrase here, but and when they came to the valley's end and it opened out before them, there was the city, the celestial city indeed. They saw it rising far above them, rising into the sun, so that they suddenly knew that the light which had shone on them throughout their journey had come from the city itself. And so with singing and great joy, they came to the end of the path and found what they least expected. 
There seemed to be no way to reach the gates of the city. The path ended abruptly in a deep and dark river that flowed swiftly. Across the river, two shining ones appeared, one sitting on a large, round stone marked with a broken seal set before an open cave. Is there no way to cross? Christian called out to them. There is no bridge, the shining ones answered. Is there no other way? Christian asked. You must go through the waters or you cannot come to the gates, the shining ones said. A look of determination filled Christian's face as he and Hopeful stepped into the waters. At first, Christian kept his eyes on the celestial city and the bottom of the river seemed firm. But then he looked down and suddenly he remembered Apollyon's charge that he had been disloyal to Emmanuel. And suddenly the river seemed to rise up against him in foaming waves and he felt the bottom slip away. This is the river of death he cried, I shall not see the celestial city. Well, do not despair, cried Hopeful, and he pulled Christian through the waters. Be of good cheer, cried Hopeful. Remember, when I pass through the waters, thou art with me. As Christian remembered the owner's promise, the waters stilled, and together he and Hopeful reached the shore on the other side. And here's, here's what brought me to tears. When they came out of the waters, they felt their bodies had changed. They were light and new and strong. All that was mortal had been washed away in the river. And Christian's armor had floated back to the other shore because where it was reverently gathered by fair hands so that it might be carried to the armor, armory of the palace beautiful, where at this moment a new banner was being hung with a story as new and as old as the world. And when they arrived at the gates, the shining one said to them, here you will see Emmanuel as he is. The bells of the city began to ring. And when Christian and Hopeful reached the gates and held out their scrolls, a cry went up loud and joyous. Christian and Hopeful entered the celestial city and as they walked in, they were changed in the twinkling of an eye. There were crowns on their head, bright robes on their backs, and new words on their lips. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Holy is the Lord. What's our application for a passage like this today? Grace brings us to perspective and to praise. That's what grace does. It gives us a perspective of who God is. The God who himself will confirm you, restore you, strengthen you, and establish you. It gives you a perspective that suffering is only for a little while. Only for a little while. But you will experience eternal glory in Christ and praise. Praise. Keep your eyes on the celestial city. Yes. Fix them on the promises of God and the hope of the gospel. But bring adoration. Bring glory. Bring praise. Bring worship to God. Father, thank you that you are the God of all grace. 
ways. And that you are, you are restoring us. You are confirming and strengthening and establishing us. You are preparing us for that day where all, all, all mortality will be, will be shed and we will, we will stand in your presence enjoying your eternal glory. Oh Lord, may, may our perspectives always be on heaven above, that we, that we might look to you and remember how good you are because you are the God of all grace.